John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew that uh, what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrews, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered uh, them up and filled the twelve baskets with with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they uh, were about to come and take him by force uh, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time of worship, Lord. And as we move into uh, this time where we hear your word spoken from Jonathan, Lord, we just pray that you'd speak through him. And um, Lord, would you just, um, just give him peace? Uh, would you allow him to just uh, speak from the heart, Lord? And uh, Father, uh, would you pierce our hearts this morning um, with your word? Father, um, your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord. And um, we are just so thankful for the gift uh, that you've offered to us um, to have this ability to listen um, from you, Lord. So we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. And uh, we're going to continue our, our journey in learning about the Gospel of John. Today we are looking at John 6 from verses 1 through 15. The, the really cool thing about this story is, or this, this event is that this is the only event that's recorded of all, the, of all the miracles that Jesus performed in all the Gospels. It's in every Gospel. This is the only miracle that's mentioned in every Gospel, which is very fascinating. And a few reasons to remember why did Jesus do and perform miracles. The first thing is he wanted to show that he was greater than all the prophets than all the prophets. And this, this, in, this event over here runs parallel to, to Numbers 11, where we see the people in, in the wilderness. We see Moses freaking out as to how do I provide food for these people, and then God provides them food. This runs parallel to that story. And the second reason why Jesus performed miracles was to show them that he was God, that he was one with God. We see in Matthew 9 how Jesus forgive someone's sins, which was insane for them to think about, that someone could actually do that. We see uh, Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So Jesus wanted to show and say, hey, I am God. I am one with God. And the third reason why Jesus performed miracles was to provide an immediate physical need to reveal 
the eminent spiritual need that only he can satisfy. So he was providing wine at a party, not because that was just the need, but yes, but he was showing a greater truth to what they had to understand, that God, Jesus here, was, was opening their eyes for them to see something different. And we see in John 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. So this, this whole thing over here is to reveal that he, there's a greater truth, a, gr- a greater need that we have to open our eyes to. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, he came into the world not to give bread, but to be bread. So this, this story begins with Jesus withdrawing to the eastern side of the lake. And we have to understand why he did that, because that really gives us context as to what's happening here. The, the Gospels talk about it. We see in Mark, we see that the apostles had just finished a whole day of going and preaching and teaching and praying for people, of ministry, a whole day. They were tired, they were exhausted, and it says in Mark 6.30, it says that they were hungry. They needed a place to rest. And then the second reason why we see this in Matthew Jesus had just heard, just heard that John the Baptist was executed, was beheaded. Now, we know that Jesus was fully man and fully God. And I, I cannot imagine how Jesus was, was, must have been feeling at the time to think about the fact that his, his cousin was beheaded, right? So Jesus is saying, let's just go, let's go somewhere, let's just be quiet. Let's rest. But then what happens? <laughs> this is what happens, right? <laughs> so... From this event, I, I want us to think about a few things. I want us to think about how would we have reacted to Jesus if we were there, okay? You know, when, when we are faced with an impossible situation that we have no way of figuring it out, and we have Jesus on the other side, and you are in the middle, how would you respond? I have five points, okay, to, to talk about what kind of a follower are you? Because very often the way we respond shows us how we think about ourselves and how we think about God. And we see five different responses in this passage. And I'm hoping and praying that you will be able to see yourself in one of those five categories. This is not a personality test, okay? Just so you know. (laughs) Okay? It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. This is how do I, how do you respond to Jesus who can do all things when we are faced with an impossible situation? The first, the first response, okay, is the crowd follower. In verse 1 and 2, we, 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 this is what I call the bandwagon effect, right? In verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. And we know why they were following, because it says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. These were the folks who would just follow wherever the crowd was going. And Paul describes them in Ephesians 4, verse 14. He says, these are the folks who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and and deceitful schemes. These folks don't really care who Jesus is for the most part. They want to be fed. They want to see miracles. They were most likely traveling to Jerusalem from from different places, from their hometowns for the feast of the Passover. They were here and they were like, hey, we got to check out this guy. We've been hearing about him, right? And just so you know, if, if you can change water into wine, word gets around pretty fast, okay? He was trending back in the day, I'm pretty sure, okay? So they're here to see miracles. They're here to see, uh, and also he spoke with authority. He was just different. But for the most part, 
they wanted to be entertained. We see in John 6, 66, one of the most saddest verses in the Bible where a lot of disciples left him because of the hard teaching. They didn't want, they didn't want to really know more. They just wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to see him do stuff like a street performer. They wanted the benefits without the commitment. They wanted to see signs and miracles without believing in him. They saw him as a celebrity, but not as their savior. He was not the author of life. The question I have for you this morning is, how many of us have that attitude? You know, it's as if I will follow Jesus as long as it's not too inconvenient for me, right? Somehow, if it's too much work, I don't want it. Is that how we see our walk with, is that the way we follow Jesus? Do our lives look different during the week outside of Sunday? This is my Sunday face and this is the week. This is how I look like. This is how I talk. Is that how you operate? Do you come to church because your friends and family do it and that's it? And I think some of us can be stuck in this cycle of just church shopping, right? Because you don't want to you don't want people to know who you are. The lesser you are involved, the safer you are, right? If that's who you are, then you are. You are the, the crowd follower. And my, my desire today is that, that we'll all be convicted in some way, that we'll all listen to God's voice in us, okay? If that's you, um, the beauty is Jesus loves you. Jesus knew every heart of everyone who was there. The second response we see, okay, the second, this is the second category, right? The second response is, I call them the, the, the stats and data dependent follower, okay? <laughs> now, we see this in verse 7. Philip answered, this is one of the disciples, Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, just so you know, uh, that math doesn't add up, Okay? Even if, he, even if he had 200 denarii, it makes no sense. That will not be enough to feed anyone there. Jesus knew what he was going to do. We see in verse 6, he wasn't asking him for advice. He wanted to know if this guy can, can understand that he is greater than, that he can provide. And the disciples were saying, hey, let's just send them away. They, let them find food. But Jesus says, no, no, I want, I want them to be here, and I want you to provide for it. I don't know why Jesus targeted Philip. No, no idea why. Maybe he was prone to be more of a pragmatic kind of a thinker, right? Maybe he was the guy who was the numbers guy at the, with the disciples. Maybe he was prone to that. But all we know is that Jesus knows his heart. He knows how this guy thinks. And just so you know, 200 denarii was approximately eight months worth of wages. And the average slave or the minimum wage was about one denarii a day. So... There was no way on earth this amount would have been enough to feed that many people. So th these are some examples of how, if you are a stats and data guy, a person, this is some examples. So these are the folks who will give you 10 reasons why they are worried about one problem, okay? These are the folks who will create scenarios in their mind to fix one problem by creating 10 more problems. That's kind of like me in many ways. Uh, these are the folks who know, who need to know every little detail before they take the first step. These are the folks who will spend time analyzing their impossible predicament and emotionally and mentally live out every scenario of how they're going to fail in every possible way in their mind. 
And one thing that's very common with these folks, with the stats and data people who need to make sure that everything adds up, one thing that's very common is that they worry. They worry. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. I'm sure you've heard this verse before. This is Paul saying, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, known, be, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a command, church. It's a command that we do not worry. When we slowly take our eyes away from Jesus and we look at everything that's happening around us that we have no control over, that you cannot fix, you don't have a solution, but you want to make plans to fix this problem, the more you do that, the more you'll be filled with worry. The more you'll be filled with anxiety. You know, last year in March to April, there was a life stressor's impact on mental health and well-being survey done, okay? And these two months, you see, you know, this was the time when about 96% of our whole nation was shut down because of COVID-19. A survey is done to see how are people doing in mental health, right? And about 27% of people were seen to be depressed. It was pretty high compared to what a national average was before that. And after a month later, the U.S. Census Bureau did another little research, and they reported that about a third of our nation were showing signs of clinical depression. A third. And I, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, there's a good chance that about a third of us sitting over here may be depressed right now, may be depressed in the whole of last year. The folks who are watching online, there's a good chance you are depressed too. At least a third of us. And the, the truth, this is the truth, that you can do all the math to say if the numbers get lower, then I'll be able to come outside my house. Right? I will not be afraid of what's happening. The numbers may not look the way you want them to look like. The stuff that you're dealing with, your family, with your job, with relationships, they may not add up. But do you believe that God is greater, that he's able to do more than we can hope and imagine? You know, the, the funny thing about this is that Philip, the guy who's, being, who's giving numbers to Jesus, he was there when Jesus turned water into wine. He was there when, when they were out there praying for people and seeing miracles happen. He was there at that time when Jesus was praying for people and healing people all around him at that time. But still, he was prone to think about how can I make this work in my own strength, in my own wisdom. And dear church, we have to realize that when we are faced with impossible situations that we have to look at Jesus. Do you really believe that Jesus is greater than the sum of all your problems? No matter what they are right now, do you really believe that he's greater than the sum of all your problems? Do you believe that he's greater than the sum of all your worries? That your worrying cannot change anything, that only he can. Do you believe that he's greater than the sum of all the unknowns that are in your life? Everything. The third response, we've, when we are faced with an impossible situation, 
and with Jesus is the naysayer. The naysayer are people who criticize, right? Who object, who oppose. These are the folks who, I, you know, they are very smart. They call themselves the realists, right? They are the, the practical thinkers, the critical thinkers, right? Uh, but the truth is, is nothing is ever good enough for them. And they are a wet blanket in many ways. So in verse 8 and 9, we see another disciple here, Andrew. Simon Peter's brother says, says to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, and I wish he'd just stop there, okay? <laughs> he wishes to stop. He says, but what are they for so many? But what are they for so many? Andrew was resourceful, right? He found a kid with bread, with some food, but not reassuring. Andrew saw people to, God, saw Jesus turn water into wine. He saw all the miracles, but still there is this negativity that that's in him. In First Thessalonians five verse fourteen, Paul says, "And we, and I and I urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone." You know, the, these are the folks. The nations are the folks who are around to help but they aren't very positive all the time. They hang out, they're there, but they always tend to pull your spirits down a little bit. And as I'm saying these things, I want you to look at your heart, okay? Don't think, I know exactly who this is, right? Don't, don't think that way, okay? <laughs> it's my spouse, but no, no, no. Think about your heart. Is this you? Are you that person? Are you that person? You know, some signs that show that Sure, if you're a negative person, is the first thing is, do you tell, do you try to tell others what to do or not do, even when they don't ask you? Okay? Do you tend to be very pessimistic or have a fatalistic view on everything? Do you complain a lot? Do you entertain gossip? Do you tend to put a negative spin on good news? And, and church, this may be a shocker, but being negative is not a spiritual gift. Okay, it's not. It's not a spiritual gift. Being negative is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not. It's not. Only pointing out mistakes and shortcomings in others is a sign of pride. And I think so often we, we do that. We, we justify that. And in Luke 6, 45, it says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And very often there may be a deeper issue that's going on, that's causing you to be a naysayer. You know, and I, I think we, we do, I do value personality tests and all those fun things, okay? Nothing wrong with that. Hear me out, please. But there is a problem. If I justify my behavior that is not Christ-like and say this is the way I am, that is not the gospel. That isn't the way we're supposed to live with one another, church. Okay? And we may have tendencies, and I get that, but we cannot justify, we cannot justify our poor behavior because of our personality. You know, no matter what your personality type is, we should be a people who are joyful in the Lord. No matter what we believe about our personality, we should be able to rejoice in all circumstances. And we should be able to see the goodness of Jesus and his work in others' lives in spite of their brokenness, in spite of their mess and their sin. Because we all are in process.
But if you can only see the negative and the wrongs in people, but not see what God is doing, there's something wrong in the way you're seeing yourself in God's eyes and seeing other people. And this was Andrew's issue. Now, just saying, I'm not saying that we need to minimize sin and not talk about the hard stuff. I'm not saying that at all. The gospel is true, and we will never compromise on the gospel. But there's a huge, huge difference in between saying and telling someone you're wrong and saying, hey, I want to walk this journey with you. I want to walk with you. Because that's what Jesus did to me, and that's what he's doing to me right now. He's walking with me. There's a huge difference between that, between saying you're wrong and saying, hey, I want to walk this journey with you. So that's, that's the third, the naysayer. Just so you know, this gets better. Just hang on with me, okay? It, it'll get, it's get, it gets better, I promise. The, the fourth one is the glory seeker. And we, we, we're going to look, look back at verse 9 again because there's a mention of a boy here. It says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And that's what I want to focus on right now. A very interesting fact about this mention is that in all the three other Gospels, this is not mentioned. The boy is not mentioned anywhere. Can you believe that? Now, if this were to happen today, guess who would be on the news? Right? The little boy, right? Look, look, see what he did, right? Look what he gave up. This account is not about the boy. It's, it's about Jesus. It's about what he can do with what we offer to him. It's not about the boy. Will the story have changed if the boy gave one loaf of bread to Jesus and one fish? No. Would it have changed if he gave a, a, a crumb and a piece of fish? No, it doesn't matter what we give to him. It's what he can do with it. And so often I think we put a lot of emphasis on, on what we want to offer. And sadly, I think we, we, want to be take, we want to be recognized for that too. We want to be recognized for what we give and what we do. Uh, this may be a shocker for you guys, but just so you know, Jesus does not need any of us to do his, to do his will. He doesn't need any of us to make his name known for his glory to be revealed. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need me or the worship. He doesn't need any of us. But the beauty, this is the beauty. He invites us to play a role in his kingdom. He invites us. He could have done this without the boy. Jesus uses weak, broken, feeble, and little, little things and broken people for his kingdom. Imagine serving food for 15,000 to 20,000 people with 12 people. Imagine what would that have looked like, right? Jesus could have wiggled his nose, I don't know, snapped his finger, and made sure everyone got bread right away, right? But he said, disciples, I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to be a part of the glory of God to see how this is happening because this is not you doing this. This is my father and me doing this. But I want you to see how I multiply bread and fish as you go and serve it to everybody who's seated here. That is the beauty that God invites us to play a part in. And we get no glory in that. He gets the glory. We're going to play a part in seeing his kingdom come and grow. We see his glory being revealed to us. It's not about us. not about us. God used Gideon, a man from the smallest tribe and the weakest plan, to overcome the Midianites in Judges 6. God uses David to kill Goliath, right, for Samuel 17. God uses, used an insignificant teenage girl, Mary, to usher in the Savior of the world. And the second thing I want to talk about is, first of all, God uses the small, the weak, the little, right? It's, it's precious in His sight. He can do whatever He wants to do with it. The second thing is, the boy had to give up his last morsel of food before knowing what Jesus is going to do with it. 
you know, the, the food that he had, the, the minimum wage for the slave was not enough for them to buy food, to sustain life. So the Roman government had a provision to give them a ration of four loaves of bread for each day. That was their food for each day. He had five, so most likely he was saving one. I don't know what the story is, but this was very obviously a very poor man's food. And back in the time, he was a boy, a young boy. He had no significance at all. We have no idea who his parents were. If he was even with his parents, or maybe he was an orphan. We have no idea what was going on in, this, in, this, in the story. But he had to give up his last morsel, his last meal, before seeing what Jesus could do with it. And I think we as believers need to learn to give sacrificially to the Lord with a desire to see his glory revealed without any selfish ambition. I think many of us have plenty to give, but struggle to give a little. I don't think we understand what it is to give everything we have. I think God has blessed us in a way that's beautiful, right? But I think we struggle to give because it doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't mean, it feels like it's too little. What is this going to do for God? But God can use this in a, in a mighty way. You know, we have, we have missionaries who are being sent out from our church. And I, I know for a fact that every, every, little, every little contribution makes a huge impact in their lives and what they do. So you may not be able to give a large amount, and God doesn't care about that. Because for him, a morsel, a crumb of bread is as good as feeding 5,000 people. God can do it. But we have to be obedient to say, God, I don't see the big picture. I don't know what you're going to do with this. But I'm going to give you everything I got because you've put this on my heart. If that's what God wants you to do, then do it. It's not about the amount that you give. It's about the heart. Because the more you, you are obedient in giving to God, God works in your heart in a miraculous way. He changes your heart. He reveals how much we value and how much we worship money. The more we give it away. Because it's all His, right? Everything we have is His. Are you willing to give to God even before you recognize what he's going to do with it? Are you willing to serve in a way that's not prominent up here in the front? Or do you want to be recognized? You know, there's nothing wrong in desiring to be recognized. Just so you know, we all need to know that we're doing well. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But if that's all I do it for, for a pat in the back and some accolades, then it's, it's the wrong motivation. Now, the next two verses, verse 14 and 15, are, are very important to, to see. It, so this is the verse. It says, when the people saw this, the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And I wish they stopped, but it goes on. Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him in, by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Dear church, when we come before God as disciples, but we are partially committed to him, right? And we are holding back. We are not fully submitted to Jesus. We tend to push him to become king to justify our desires. You know, the, the thing about this, this situation over here is very, very interesting because they were coming to Jerusalem for the Feast, feast of, the, of the Passover, right? And they were celebrating the way G God had liberated them from bondage, from Egypt. They're singing songs as they come to Jerusalem, and they are here in Jerusalem looking at bondage. The Roman government was ruling them with an iron thumb, right? 
And I, I can only imagine how much that was causing frustration and anger, right? And a sense of nationalism to say, hey, this has to end. We see the zealots trying to over planning on how this can happen. And they really believed that the Messiah was the one who was sent, who could come to liberate them. They believed that the Messiah was going to usurp the Roman government and restore Israel to, the, to its former glory. You know, I like the way this, this preacher once said, he said, he came into the world to change our desires, not to simply fulfill them. And in John 18, it says that when Pilate asked Jesus, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were my kingdom, you know, my, my servants would be fighting. They'd be defending me. If Jesus really wanted to overthrow the Roman government, he had 5,000 people with him right there, men alone. He had an army with him right there. He chose not to. And guess what? He didn't even need them. He was God. He could have easily overthrown the Roman government. He chose not to. And teachers, when we are left to our own devices, insecurities, and desires, we create our own versions of Jesus and worship it. And this is also, this is also a reflection of what happened in the Old Testament with the, with the golden calf. The golden calf was not a new religion, okay? It was not a new God. It was their version of how they saw God. And so often when we want Jesus to do something for us, you're so stuck and you want this to happen, you're worshiping a version of Jesus that's not really true to who he is. It's your golden calf. Jesus is not going to comfortably fit into your political party or ideology. And if he does, you're worshiping a version of Jesus that's not really who he is. That's your golden calf. If you think you can force Jesus to do anything for you on your behalf, you're worshiping a version of Jesus that's not really who he is. It's your golden calf. Dear church, are we, are we taking Jesus out of context and trying to push him to do something for us because we believe it so much that this is the way it should happen? We have so much faith that this is the way life should look like. And I'm going to force this to happen. And guess what? Jesus is not going to be a part of that. He's not going to want to do that. He's God. And we, we live in this time be, between the now and the not and the not yet. We are here right now. And the, the truth is Jesus can do anything. He can, just, he can change every heart, every leader, if he wants to. He can, in a moment's time, heal everyone who has COVID-19 and any other disease, cancer, gone. He can make that happen. But he chooses, chooses not to. He chooses not to. And it's, not a bit, it's for a time because there'll come a time when, when we see the Son of Man coming down on the clouds and he will reign here on earth and every knee and every tongue will confess that he is God. It will happen. It will happen. But while we live here in the now and not yet, we have to look at Jesus to see how did he model life? How did he live on earth? Jesus tells us that when to these guys... He says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If these Roman soldiers force you to carry their stuff, their gear, and make you walk for a mile, guess what? Walk an extra mile. And he goes further and says, well, actually, he shows us by, by submitting to God and allowing these very Romans to spit on him, to slap him, and to crucify him on the cross. That is the model that he's shown us to live. That is the model 
And I think something we should remember constantly in 1 Peter 2, it says that we, we are not of this world. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are not of this world. Are you trying to make Jesus your political liberator? Look at the story. This is the last response. The fifth. And I love I loved this passage. This was something that God opened my eyes to see very recently. There are three verses that go beautifully together. Verse 3, and I call this the ones that reflect, regard, and respond. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he, what? He sat down with his disciples. Verse 10, Jesus then, have, Jesus said, have the people, what? Sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to who? To those who were? Who were what? Seated. Thank you. I like this image of how Jesus sits down. His disciples sit down. And then he asks them to tell them to sit down, and they sit down. There is, there is, there is value in us as the church looking at what the Bible says we should do, looking at the leaders that God has placed and see what they are telling us to do. And if it's in alignment with what the scripture says, we follow that, we do that. And I can guarantee you it's not always going to be easy. It's not going to be convenient. It's supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to make us feel uneasy in our sin, in our complacency, right? We see this beautiful image, and I, it says that those who were seated were fed. And this language of being seated is in all the Gospels. There's beauty in sitting in spite of chaos. No matter what is happening in your life, God wants us to sit at his feet. And you know what? When we sit at his feet, he tells us that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He tells us that he has chosen us. He calls us holy and blameless. In love, he has predestined us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us through his blood. He has forgiven us from, of all our sins. He has given us a purpose in Christ. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. He has given us hope in Jesus Christ. And we are sealed with the promise of his Holy Spirit, which comforts us. This is all in Ephesians 1. If you want to know what it is to sit with Jesus, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 but how, what it is to sit at the feet of Jesus. How are you missing Jesus? How have you missed Jesus in the last year? And this is, this is, this is the beauty of Jesus. He knew everyone, every heart, every person who was there on that mountainside. He knew what they were thinking. And the, the truth is, many of these guys over here who are being fed right now, we're going to scream, crucify him. He knew that. He knew that. And Matthew 14, and this should break your heart. Matthew 14 says, the, about the same story, he says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed them. Matthew 6 adds this beautiful detail. He says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
you, church, I want to remind you that no matter what you, you see yourself as and say, oh my gosh, I'm that person who's, who's worrying, I'm this person who's negative, no matter what that is, no matter where you are right now, Jesus has compassion on you. He has love towards you. If you're not saved, if you are just a guy who goes to church because people go to church, Jesus has compassion on you. He knows exactly where you are right now. He knows exactly what you've been through in the last year or however long it's been. And he has compassion on you. Are you a crowd follower without having a personal relationship with Jesus? Come and sit at his feet. Are you filled with anxiety about your finances and your health? Come and sit at his feet. Are you filled with negativity? Filled with frustrations at the things that you have no control over? I invite you to come sit at his feet. Are you willing to stop and sit at his feet? You may have things that are going on that you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea how to fix it with your health, with your finances, and you have all the plans, but it doesn't add up. Are you willing to come and sit at his feet? We're going to transition to a time of prayer right now, okay? And I'm praying that God is, that the, the Holy Spirit is talking to your hearts right now. And whatever he's revealing to you, I urge you to cry out and say, God, this is who I am. God, help me to stop worrying. God, help me to stop running. God, help me to stop planning and trying to fix things on my own because I cannot. I want to learn to sit at your feet. And if you're someone who wants to know Jesus, this is the gospel. He died for your sins. And he can be your Lord and Savior. Please talk to us. We'd love to pray with you. So we're going to close our eyes. And for the next few minutes, I encourage you to cry out to God and say, Jesus, Savior, Lord, I have taken my eyes off you. I have missed you in all of this. I want to learn to sit at your feet. God, we thank you. We thank you because you're faithful. We thank you that you know every heart in this room right now. God, we thank you that you intercede on our behalf to the Father. We thank you for that. And as we cry before you, God, we thank you that you listen to our prayers. I pray that you'll convict us, that your spirit will convict us we thank you for your word. Thank you, God. Christ died for us. Lord, uh, I don't even know what the humility looks like to receive that because uh, I, I still think that uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. The, the, the list of people I would die for is really short, I feel like, Lord. Uh, I know you're changing my heart, but then I think about you, and I think about showing love for me when I didn't want your love. I didn't want your grace. I didn't want you. But you demonstrated it in that while I was still a sinner, 
you relinquished your life. You let it go. You died for me. And you did that for us. So, Lord, I pray today that as we think about talking to you, as we think about things that are going on, God, I just, I'm, I'm not even really asking you for anything. I just want to acknowledge that we're really weak and we know we need the perspective that comes with you giving to us when we didn't even want to receive it. And so we thank you for setting that precedent. We ask, Lord, that in a a small way or, or big ways, however you ask us to, we would continue that precedent and move forward with you. We love you, God. We know we need you. We probably don't even know how much, but we know we need you. And we continue to look to you, Lord, for all things. We trust you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you haven't grabbed a communion cup yet, you can do so while I'm talking right now. Um, I won't be offended. Um, But one of the passages of Scripture that you'll want to continue to think about, um, you know, if you got kiddos or grandkids or nieces and nephews, whatever that looks like, one of the passages of Scripture that you'll want to memorize at some point is this passage in Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The foundation of the gospel is this, that we are receiving something not only that we don't deserve, because that would be a, an oversimplification of what Christ did for us, but it's actually beyond something that we even deserve. I mean, we, we can recognize we don't deserve someone to die for us. But the hardest thing for us to accept is how at one point our posture to Jesus, despite his love, was one of not just ambivalence, but of actual enemy. If you think about Jesus now, for those of you who follow the Lord, if you think about the fact that your posture at one point was one of an enemy to Jesus, that you would have seen your purpose in life as contrary to him then what you can start to see and recognize is how far he has brought you. And where you are today, the fact that you're even hearing his name spoken with honor, the fact that when you hear Jesus' name, some of you, you still have that sense of like, man, that's that's the one for me. That's him. That's everything for me. Uh, When I think about me being an enemy of Christ, Um, that was then brought near and Christ literally seated me at his table now. I get to dine and feast with someone so much greater than me that he could have crushed me. See, what would have made sense in Romans 5.8 is while I was still a sinner, Christ just did away with me. But that isn't it. The answer to the question that Christ gives is contrary to maybe the way that I even think. So think about this. While we were still sinners, Christ called us to sit at the table with him. He called us to think of him, look at him. 
and to be his friend. Now, I can never, I can never look at Jesus and say, that's my friend, and not feel a sense of trepidation. And I don't even know that I feel comfortable saying it that way, but he calls us friend. And so when we, look, we think about Jesus, it's not just that Christ died for you and you were ambivalent to him and at one point you woke up to the reality. It's that you were diabolically opposed to him and instead of literally pushing you away and letting you go to what you deserve, letting you go to where you wanted to go, he said, I want you here with me. And you didn't even know how much you wanted him. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't even know now. And you don't even know now how much you really want him. But you will. Give it time. Seek the Lord. And what you will find is somebody as good as anything you've ever seen in your entire life. So good that they do the opposite of what you think would be fair. And they bring you and they seat you at their table and they feed you, and they love you, and they care for you in ways that you didn't even know you needed. That is who Christ is. He is a provider at the very core and the foundation of the gospel is is that I was an enemy and now I am brought near. And so as we take communion today, that is the bringing near. You are saying again, Lord, I acknowledge I want to live for you this week, this this next year, for the rest of my life. You're saying it again. You're saying that, Lord, you brought me to your table and I'm coming, full-hearted, saying, Lord, I, I want to be at this table. And, and you know that you're a sinner. But here's what he says. He doesn't say that a sinner needs to sit with him in shame. He says a sinner needs to sit with him because he calls you friend. So walk in that. As you take communion, Picture this in your mind, and, I, and I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to actually ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to, to picture what it would be like to sit across the table from Jesus. Because one day we're going to feast with him again. And you won't have to picture it in your mind and use your imagination. But we will feast with Christ again. And we will be seated at that table like old friends enjoying a meal together after a life well lived. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around to the people whom he was closest with on the earth. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, in a spirit of feasting, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood formed, cemented, and fixated on this idea that my commitment to you is steadfast. And although we know that our commitment to him at times wavers, His steadfastness seals the relationship. And so we do this in remembrance of him.
Lord, our trust of you is uh, small. But I'm really excited that you have brought me near. We pray that each person in here today would see how you've brought them near. That even hearing your name, Jesus, 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 that you are something more to us than any human relationship or any analogy can possibly even come close to. And so, Lord, from the depths of us, we just say thank you. And thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.